I think about my grandchildren. I have five of them. And I think about them all the time. And about my children too. What can I pass down to them? I'm at this place where I'm trying to get rid of stuff. Are you there yet? Maybe at 58 you will be. But there's just this thought about, I want to just clear out, right? So I'm giving jewelry away that was precious to me. Not all of it, because I still have some years left. But I, I'm, I'm giving away a lot of it. In fact, if, if you would come to burglarize my house, there's not much left. Because I, I try, I'm trying to give it now to my daughters and to my daughter-in-law while I can see them being blessed by it. But like I said, there, there's not much to, to give. I, I loaned my daughter-in-law at Thanksgiving. I said, oh, I'm wearing this locket. It would look so good on you. I bought it in Israel. And last time I was there, she's like, oh, Evelyn, which is my three-year-old granddaughter, wants me to give this back to you because it belongs to you. And she is just stressing out over the fact that I keep wearing it. And so I took it back. But, you know, I, I think all the time, I don't have money. I don't have, uh, we haven't made the trust yet. I know we need to. But I don't, there's not much that the kids are going to get out of my death. I, I'm just saying, right? There's just not much. That way they won't murder me. Like, there's nothing there. No, no mat- matricide here. But what can I give my kids that's imperishable? What can I give them that will be lasting, that is incorruptible, that doesn't rust, that doesn't fade, that you know, remains substantial, something that they can hold on to, that's secured. It, it can't be, you know, the, the bank can't close and say, well, we, we needed it more than you did. It's secured, it's fail-safe, it's constant. It's always available. It's eternal what can I leave to my children? What can I entrust to them that will sustain them, that will help them through any time of life, that will satisfy them, that will bless them, that will establish them, that will protect them, and that will keep them? You know, years ago, I have, my oldest son is hyperactive. Like, he was hyperactive, and he seems to have maintained the same energy level. Uh, and he was just like, you, you couldn't really hug him because he didn't hold still long enough. And, and when you're talking to him, you're like shouting because you don't know what part of the house your neighborhood he's in. He's just, he was just so fast and so hyper. And I remember that I was making quilts because we got really into quilt in a day at Calvary Chapel Vista. It was like our thing. We're making these quilts in a day. We're having these once a month. Women would get together and we'd make these quilts. And it was just amazing. So I was making quilts for everybody. Made a quilt for my mom. Made a, a quilt for a friend who was getting married. Made a quilt for all the babies in the church. Of course, because we were all doing quilt in the day. Every baby in the church got like 10 quilts. But we were having so much fun making these quilts. And I remember my son coming in the room and going, oh, yeah, this hyperactive kid, another quilt for another person, but not your own family. And then he turned around and ran off someplace. And so I went out and I got this fabric and I started making a quilt for him. And I worked on it and I put it on his bed because the thought was for me. I want something that will comfort him, warm him, bless him, and help him sleep at night when I'm not there. And so I made him this quilt, and I took it upstairs, and I put it on his bed. It was the log cabin. And I put it on his bed, and he, I hear him. I'm downstairs. I hear him say to Brian, Mom just put one of her quilts that she made on my bed. And... Brian said, no, she didn't. And he said, yes, she did. You should see it. He goes, no, she made that quilt for you. And the next thing I knew, I heard the, his footsteps running down the stairs. Actually, I think he leapt over them. And he ran up and he hugged me. 
And just about as I was going to get my arms around him, he was raptured, <laughs> just gone. And I thought, you know, it doesn't matter because I made him this quilt and it will stay with him. Do you know he still has that quilt? He, he just turned 35 in April and it's in tatters, but he can't throw it away because he still loves that mangy quilt that I made him. But, you know, obviously I wanted something that would do all those things for him and it's in tatters. It is so torn. I tried to put new cloth on it, but you know what Jesus said? Don't try putting new cloth on an old quilt. I mean, it just tore. It just, I mean, it's in tatters. I thought about trying to do the corduroy teddy bear thing, like make a teddy bear out of it, but it's, it's too gone. But they, they have it in a basket because the kids love it and it's all it's so ripped up. But you, you think, what can I give them? What can I give them? When I read the news and I see the direction of their peers and what's going on and the pressures, you know, we never had to deal with the things they're dealing with in life. When I, when I see what they're up against, you know, when my kids are saying to me, well, we'll never be able to afford a home in Orange County. We'll never be able to live near you. You got it just right in the market, but we can't afford it. I don't know what am I going to do for the rest of my life? How am I going to make enough money, you know, to afford food? And I'm thinking about all the things, you know, right now we can kind of help them every once in a while, but what about, what about when I'm gone? Certainly money and material assets are not enough. One, I want to protect all my grandkids. I don't have enough money to hire bodyguards for each one of my grandchildren. You know, my, my 10 year old, 11 year old grandson, you know, he's in school in New York. Even says, yeah, I'm in school in New York. And he goes to New York and there were these bullies and there's these things, you know, and I, I want to just go there and go, which kid? Every time I visit, which kid? You know, and that's definitely not the Lord's will, but you want to hire like these bodyguards for your grandkids. I don't have enough wealth to ensure their welfare for life. You know, like, yes, I'm leaving you, you know, a trillion dollars. Besides that, the money that I've given them in the past, it's gone. They spend money so fast. Yo, who in their right mind pays $5 for a donut? My children. They're like, yeah, I bought a cronut. Set me back $8. Who buys, you know, it, never mind. But even material assets. You know, have you given your children furniture only to find out, yeah, we sold it on eBay? You're like, I would have kept it had I known you were going to sell it. You know, I remember giving a set of knives to my daughter because she said, I need knives. I go to her house to cook. I'm like, where are the knives? Oh, we sold it on eBay. Or I think, no, they returned it. We returned it. We really wanted the money. You're like, you know what? Let's skip the middleman. You just, I'll just give you money. You know, I, I like wrapping a present. I decided to just wrap a dollar and give it to them. <laughs> the greatest treasure, the greatest thing I can pass on is faith in God. That's it. It's the personal testimony I have of what God has done in my life. One of my greatest treasures that I have in my house is copies of the letters that my dad wrote to his mother during his first pastorate in Prescott, Arizona. They are the most amazing letters. One, my dad was hilarious. And just the way he, he framed things, and I love it every time there's a typo because I'm like, see, he wasn't perfect. He, he can be my father because I couldn't have a perfect father. That would, that would just be too intimidating. But I, I just love these letters and his humor. In one story, he talks about being absolutely broke, totally broke. They didn't know where they were going to get the money. And my grandma and grandpa didn't have much money. My grandpa had had a um, nervous breakdown and my grandma had to become the breadwinner. That's on my parents and my 
on my dad's side, on my mom's side, my grandmother had had a stroke and her father died in his 50s. So there's like not any material resources. So they depended on the Lord. And my dad made um, like $15 a week in those days. And they lived in the back of the church and they used the bathrooms at the front of the church. And when they needed a shower, they went to some people's house um, in the church that let them use their shower. I mean, crazy, but they were so happy in Jesus. My dad tells this story when they didn't have any money at all, and they just didn't know what they were going to do. Oh, I could tell you so much. I could tell you about the time the scorpion went, and my dad was just waiting to hear my mom scream, but I'll tell you that later. Different. That's next year when we study Hebrews. So my my dad is, is writing to my mom and saying, we were totally broke. We didn't have any money. Remember, this was when there was only snail mail, right? And so by the time this letter reached my grandparents, this incident was way gone. But, you know, so my dad's there and he and my mom just finished praying like, Lord, you know our needs. We need provision. And all of a sudden, this Cadillac limousine pulls up to the church and this chauffeur gets out and he says, hey, you know, my boss wants to marry his doll. Can you do the ceremony? And so my dad says, sure. So he says, my mom goes and she's, she's like eight and a half months pregnant. And she plays the organ and the woman walks down the aisle. Now it's just the chauffeur, my father, the mafioso, his doll, and my mother on the organ. That's it. So then my mom is both organist and witness along with the chauffeur for this wedding. And my dad does this wedding and he performs it and they go off in the limousine. Before they leave, he, he hands my dad an envelope and they drive off and my dad opens the envelope and he says, oh no. And my mom says, what Chuck, what? And he said, well, I gave them the $10 ceremony and they gave us $100. There's so many stories of faith, just one more. One more. Another time they were, they were broke. Another time. You see, faith always requires a deficit, right? To get the best stories. So they're broke. Another broke story. They're absolutely broke. It's a Sunday afternoon and my mom is pregnant yet again. And she's craving a root beer. Some of you remember, remember A&W root beer when they had the stands and they would come up to you and they'd put that tray on the side of your car. For me, that was like heaven because we couldn't afford it. So every time we got to do it, it was like, the tray is on the side of our car. And then they'd bring you out the root beers. Anybody old enough to remember that? Thank God. All right. So (laughs) let me just say, you're old and advanced in years, but we'll get to that later. So my mom was craving a root beer. My dad says, okay, we don't have enough money. I'm sorry, but we don't have enough money. We only have this much. And I know what we're going to get at the market and that's it. And so what they would do on Sunday afternoons is they would go to a park and they would take like a, a piano that could travel. And my mom would play the piano and my dad would sing at these public parks. Yes. And they would draw a little bit of a crowd. And then my dad would give the gospel. And he'd end it with a song with my mom accompanying him. I actually have a record, but it's warped. I've got to find someone who can fix it. Of my mom playing the piano, my dad singing when they're in their 20s. They made it at like a circus. So anyway, my mom's playing the piano. They have no money. And all of a sudden, this drunk guy takes off his hat and goes, Oh, give this little couple some money. Have a heart. Look at them out in this Arizona sun doing all this for us. And my dad's, you know, in the letters that he's typing, he's got exactly what this drunk guy's saying. And this drunk guy goes and collects money from everybody and puts the pressure on to give to this this young couple. And then he comes and he gives the money to my mom and dad. And my dad turns to my mom and says, well, I guess you get a root beer. I love those stories. I love those stories. Those are my treasury. Those are like, oh my goodness. When I think about God's faithfulness to his parents, to my parents. 
But then I think about God's personal faithfulness to me. I have a testimony. I have battles that I've been through that God himself fought for me. There was the battle for my soul. There was the great battle which God fought Satan and sin and death and my own rebellious nature to bring me to himself and how he brought me to himself, how he continued and never gave up on me, how he delivered me from the bondage of my own self, the sinful practices I was emancipated from, the victories he has given me personally, not only my salvation, but victory in trials and the trials I've been through. You see, you also have a testimony. You have a personal testimony, and it includes your salvation and emancipation and deliverance. But it also is God's provision. I think of all the bills he has paid. Um, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir used to have this, this song, and I just loved it. And it was, food on the table. You know, just all the things God had provided. And, you know, my kids were like so sick of hearing that. You know, and they go around going, food on the table. Like mom's doing it again. But I think of all the bills he's paid. Have you ever got one of those bills like, oh, I don't know how we're going to do this one. And then God comes through. The home he has provided, the food, the clothing, the transportation, the family, the community. I just think about all those things. But then also it's God's promises to me, to you. Do you have a promise that God's fulfilled? I, I, I can turn almost any place in the Bible and find a promise and say, yep, he did that for me. Yep, he did that for me. I know these promises and how he has fulfilled his word. Then there's his protection. All those times where God protected us from destruction, devastation, deprivation, disaster, even death. God came through. I mean, I've got too many stories like that. Too many. Nobody should have that many stories. Being a child in the Yom Kippur War and being the first plane with my father, singing Heaven is a Wonderful Place, taking out of Israel. And I remember we went to to Ben-Gurion Airport. They had the lights all off. They put us all in the plane with flashlights because Israel was under attack. We all get on the plane. We have to keep the shades down. The lights are off inside the plane. And all of a sudden they light up the airport. We take off and then the lights go off at Ben Gurion. And we had to fly without lights on our plane. My dad thought that was great. Who else has a testimony like this, Cheryl? I was in public school then. Just think what you can tell those kids in school. You can give a witness about how you were in the war and God saved you. Like, okay, okay. Tell me again. What's the script at? But God, but God. Just recently when we were in Australia, we, through booking.com, we got the, we got a room uh, a two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment because we were sharing that with Linda um, Rourke and it was less expensive than staying at the Holiday Inn for two people, you know, in two rooms. So we got one room and they put us on the 69th floor and then they gave us those things like, tell all your friends how nice we are. But it was like this incredible room with this view. So we're on the 69th floor and the gym's on the 64th floor. We've got jet lag, but Linda says, do you want to see the gym? And I say, yeah, let's go see the gym. So we go out of our room. I really am going to get to the Bible state. We get out of our room and we get in the elevator and we don't know what we're doing because it's one of those high-tech ones that you've got to show a card. And so it opens on the 65th floor. And I said, Linda, let's just get out and take the stairs. So we get out, we take the stairs only to find out that in this grimy, dingy, dark stairwell up on floor 65, the doors do not open. So we go up a flight and the stair does not open. Now, neither one of us brought our cell phones, right? And Brian is asleep by this time because he's got jet lag. And there we are. And I'm thinking, we will not be found for days. (laughs) We're on the 65th floor of this abandoned stairwell. So we go down a floor, the door's locked. We go down another floor, the door's locked. We keep going down floors. 
you know, hoping that maybe if we get to the bottom, the door will be unlocked. But hallelujah, on the 36th floor, the door was wedged open. I don't know how, because I tried every door. I'm telling you, I tried 64, 63, 62, 61, 60, and it was open. And we jumped out of there. All she would say to me the whole time is, aren't you glad you're not alone? Yes, (laughs) yes, 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 because I, you know. But we get out, we jump in the elevator, and now the elevator won't work. The doors are closed, and they won't open, and we're not going anywhere. We're hitting the alarm button. And finally, it takes us down to the lobby. Hallelujah. We get off at the lobby and we're like, our cards don't work. And they're like, you were in the residence elevator. How did you get in the residence elevator? We're like, boy, do we have a story for you. You know, if there was a fire, all those doors are locked. We would perish in the stairwell. But you know, when I got out of there, I was just, I said, Linda, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. You know, and then I had to wake up Brian you don't know. I almost died. (laughs) This is what we have to pass on. It's personal. It's personal. It's individualized for each one of you. Each one of you have a story. It's personal, but it's also communal. We can talk together of all that God has brought us through. It's eternal. It's not going to stop. Like, well, you've had all the promises. You've had all the blessings of faith you're going to have. No, it keeps going. You know, at 58, God's still fighting for me. He's still opening doors on the 36th floor, still wedging them open for me. He has not left me. It's a blessing. It still brings God's favor. It's protective. It's securing and stabilizing, and it's my faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what I want to give my kids. This is what they need. This is what will help. This will bless and protect. And it's essential that we pass it on and pass it down. It is living. You see, we need to tell our children that God, saves and he wants to save them. We need to remind them of God's work in their life, of God's deliverance to them, of God's promises, God's blessing, God's warning to them. See, you have your own faith story to pass on, but you need to show them this next generation how God is already working in their life. Paul the apostle, when he was in Nero's prison and he was awaiting certain death, he wrote an epistle to Timothy And he said, look, I know I'm going to die, but Timothy, it's so important. It's so essential that you take this faith, this faith that was in Eunice, your grandmother, this faith that was in Lois, your mother, this faith that you've heard and you've seen in me, this faith that, that you have and you stir it up and you continue in it. That you don't stop, but you keep that which was committed to you. That you're strong in the grace of God. And then he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, that you commit the things, this faith that you have heard, to faithful men who will be able to teach them to others. That's what it's about. Recently at our our When Leaders Lead retreat, uh, Donna had bought this um, fountain that had one pot pouring into another pot that poured into another pot. And then the water is regenerated back to the first pot. And I thought, that's what faith does. It pours out completely to the next one. And then the next one pours out what they're receiving to the next one. That's what we do with faith. We are filled with faith. And then we pour out the blessings of faith to the next generation. And then they pass it on to the next generation. But how do we do this? Now we're at the text. Joshua 23. That's how we do it. We look at Joshua. You know, his influence. He used it. He might be old and advanced in years. And most commentaries say he's at least 110. So for those of you who are feeling old, well, you got a ways to go. He's at least 110. But he's been faithful 
to the call. He has led Israel into the promises. He has established the tribes in their allotments according to the directives of the Lord. And now the nation of Israel is settled and it's at rest. At this time, it's believed 30 years, 30 years or so. They're settled. They've adapted to this new way of life. The nomadic life is over. They're no longer living in tents. They've got houses and they've got farms. Their enemies are subdued before them. And Joshua calls the leadership in verse 2 of chapter 23 all together. He calls the elders, the heads of households, the judges, the officers. Because he is going to pass on the treasury of faith to them. That's what he's going to do. Now, it's interesting because remember, Moses passed this down just to Joshua. But Joshua, who is a type of Christ, he passes it out to all of Israel. All of Israel. Not just one leader, but he says, your leaders, your officers. This needs to become very personal. It is time for these elders to lead. He is passing on the treasury of faith, that which will sustain them, establish them, protect them, bless them. Because faith in God alone will do these things. And he begins by acknowledging his own weakness, old and advanced in years. In other words, you can't lean and you can't depend on me. I'm not going to always be here. You know, there's something that's called um, grandchildren's faith right? You can't, you can't, you can't impart, let's see, what, how do I want to say this? You know what I mean? You can't lean on somebody else's faith. Like the virgins in Matthew 25 that were saying, you know, give us some of your oil. Each one has to have their own personal supply of oil or relationship to God, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. We each need it individually, And this is what Joshua is saying. You can't lean on me. You you can't wear bracelets that would say WWJD. What would Joshua do? I'm passing off the scene. You have to have the direct line open to the Lord. You must transfer all the faith that you've had, all the security that you've had on me in Jesus. You know, there are a lot of people that were secure as long as Chuck Smith was in this pulpit. And I have to say, I never worried about a situation when I was with my dad. Like I said, Yom Kippur, war, whatever. I always felt safe in the presence of my dad. It's like, it was like the temple in Jerusalem. As long as that temple's there, I'm totally safe. And as long as Chuck was there, we all felt safe. And there were people that trusted more in Chuck than in Jesus Christ. But it is so important That our faith is not in a man or a person, but in Jesus Christ and what he's done. Joshua then reminds them of their personal experience of God. In verse 3, he tells them what they have seen personally. You have seen all that the Lord, your God, has done to all these nations because of you. You. God loves you. I can't tell you the people that would come up to my father and sometimes me and say, I know you have a direct line to God. So will you pray for me? It's like, "Mm." my line is as direct as your line. We all have a direct line to Jesus. He's our emergency number on our cell phones. They have seen for themselves. God defeated the nations for them personally. Joshua is saying, you're the reason. It wasn't for me. It's for you that you personally might have the promises. You see, the treasury of faith is first personal. And then Joshua tells them four times that God fought for them. In verse 14, Joshua says, behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. Again, you can't lean on me. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord, your God, spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you and not one word of them has failed. Part of the treasury of faith is saying 
This is personal for you. It wasn't just for me. It's for you. Joshua pointed out to the leaders, God did all this for you because he loves you, because he is for you, because he wants you to have all his promises more than you want his promises. Their eyes had witnessed the work of God. They knew in their hearts the veracity of God's promise. When we pass on faith, we are passing on the presence and power and personal relationship of God. And we are not alone. The Holy Spirit is working with us, convicting, reminding, testifying to the hearts of our children, this next generation, the reality of God's love and work on their behalf. This generation needs to be reminded of what they have seen of the work of God, what they have heard of the work of God, and what they have felt in their hearts and life. You've heard this story before because my parents stole it from me and told me I couldn't use it again. But since they're no longer sharing publicly, I get my story back. When Char was a little boy, Char, again, the hyperactive child, this story is all about Char and Joshua. When Char was little, he used to have these deep questions every night before he went to bed. And I am very efficient. I like short answers and I love sleep. And I love to be in bed by nine. But I would do the Bible study. I would pray over each child like you're blessed, you're sanctified, go to sleep. But he'd always have a question like, Mom, I don't know if I'm saved. And I'd go back in there and say, say this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. I need you to save me. Be my savior. Be my savior. Amen. Amen. Okay, you're safe. Go to sleep. I would do things like that. I was just, you know, and then Brian would come home. Charlie would still be awake. Dad, I don't know if I'm saved. And oh my goodness, Brian would go in there, sit with him, go through the scriptures, assure the kid of his salvation, pray over him, hug him, even lie down next to him. I'm like, I already took care of that. So I was convicted, Okay. I was convicted of my efficiency and my, you know, mothering, but I had other things to do and three other children to attend to. And I was so convicted. And so this one night I'd done the Bible study. I'm leaving and Char says, Mom, I don't know if I've ever heard God speak to me. I'm thinking, oh, great. It's kind of like what would Brian do situation. So I prayed and I said, God, give me an answer and give me grace for this child. I sat on his bed and I'm praying. And I said, Char, remember how you broke the dining room window this week? It was only one of 10 windows he broke in his life. And he said, yeah. I said, well, remember when you took the ladder and put it up in the garage and you climbed up into the eave and you grabbed dad's golf clubs, which dad had put in the eave so you wouldn't grab them? Yeah. So while you were doing that, moving the ladder and putting it up there, did you ever kind of sense inside yourself this voice saying, no, you shouldn't do this? And he's like, yes. I said, okay. When you brought the golf clubs down and you took that one golf club out, was there that same voice saying, I don't think this is wise. I shouldn't be doing this. Yes. Okay, when you took that golf club out to the backyard and you started hitting pieces of bark against the house, did you, did you feel that voice again saying, this is not a good idea. You shouldn't be doing this. He said, yes. And I said, and then we know that the window got broken in the dining room and we can't afford to fix it. So we've just got the duct tape all over it. I said, Char, that's the voice of the Lord speaking to you. And I said, the more you heed that voice, that, that, that nagging, but kind voice. I said, that's the Lord. And the more you heed it, the more you're going to hear it and the louder it's going to get. And he's like, wow. So I'm just leaving the threshold of his room. I'm about to pass the hallway into my own room. And I hear mom. I said, yes. He goes, I've heard the Lord a lot. 
we need to remind this generation, you heard the Lord. This is what the Lord did for you when you were two, when you were four, because we know their stories and we know God's grace on their lives. We know their story. We need to remind them of their story. Joshua pointed this out to these leaders. Next, Joshua reminds the leaders of all they have because of the Lord. Verse four, see, I've divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for you. Again, by God's grace, they have the land, they have their inheritance, they have their homes, they have their farms, they have their communities. This is why we pray before we eat to remind our children that this food and this provision, this is from God. God did this. Our whole lives are miraculous if we would only think it out. And then in verse nine, for the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. Passing on faith requires pointing out all the gifts that God has given. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We need to point this next generation to all the good gifts that they have from God. You know, our nation is not like any other nation. The food that we have readily available, the markets, oh my goodness, all of this is a miracle. I have a friend who was on the mission field. She came back from Poland and her daughters came to these doors and they're, they you know, open automatically. You know how they do? And their daughters jumped back and screamed like, because ah! the door opened in front of them like, who's doing that? We forget, this is America, doors open for us. She said that like, they, they went to get water from their mom's refrigerator because they had never seen a refrigerator where water could come out the front door. And she said she comes in, her daughter's like all twisted up because she'd only seen drinking fountains and figured that was how you got the water out of the refrigerator. We have so much, but we need to take inventory of it. And then give that inventory to the next generation to illuminate them to all that God has given them personally and corporately. I think we live in a nation that has forgotten how blessed they are by God. And they have begun to take the blessings for granted and think that they've earned them or entitled to them instead of rehearsing and thanking God for them. Verse five, they need to be reminded of God's future promises. And the Lord your God will expel from before you and drive them out of your sight so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God has promised you. And then in verse 10, one man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God is he who fights for you. He has promised. You see, this is not the end. The end of Christianity is not a house with a white picket fence. That's not the end. That's just the beginning. God has so many promises, great and precious promises awaiting. There's adventure. There's joy. And this is a book of promise, of one promise after another. A promise for every situation, for all of life and godliness. There is hope. Recently, a friend of mine whose husband has dementia sent this to me in a little update. And it's a quote from Mark Batterson's Batterson's book, The Circle Maker. And I want to read it to you. The Bible tells us that the Lord is watching over his word to perform it. There is nothing the Lord loves more than keeping his promises. He is actively watching and waiting for us to take him at his word. He is watching over Matthew 18, 18. He is watching over Isaiah 59, 21. He's watching over Luke 7, 23. He is watching over each and every promise. And if that doesn't fill you with holy confidence, nothing will. Praying hard is standing on the promises of God. And when we stand on his word, God stands by his word. His word is his bond. Psalm 8411 captures the heart of the heavenly father. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He most certainly won't bless disobedience, but he most certainly will bless obedience. If you take God at his word, you'll make the joyful discovery that God wants to bless you far more than you want to be blessed. And his capacity to give is far greater than your capacity to receive. 
What I'm about to share has the power to revolutionate the way you pray and the way you read the Bible. We often view prayer and scripture reading as two distinct spiritual disciplines with a little overlap. But what if they were meant to be hyperlinked? What if reading became a form of praying and praying became a form of reading? One of the primary reasons we don't pray through is because we run out of things to say. Our lack of persistence is really a lack of conversation pieces. Like an awkward conversation, we don't know what to say. Or like a conversation on its last leg, we run out of things to talk about. That's when our prayers turn into a bunch of overused and misapplied cliches. Ever have that happen? Happen? Hoping? I'm hoping it never happens. So instead of praying hard about a big dream, we're left with small talk. Our prayers are as meaningless as a conversation about the weather. The solution, pray through the Bible. Prayer was never meant to be a monologue. It was meant to be a dialogue. Think of scripture as part of God's script. Prayer is our part. Scripture is God's way of initiating a conversation. Prayer is our response. The paradigm shift happens when you realize the Bible wasn't meant to be read through. The Bible was meant to be prayed through. And if you pray through it, you will never run out of things to talk about. The Bible is a promise book and a prayer book. And while reading it is reactive, prayer is proactive. Reading is the way you get through the Bible. Praying is the way you get the Bible through you. As you pray, the Holy Spirit will quicken certain promises to your spirit. It's very difficult to predict what and where and when and how, but over time, the promises of God will become your promises. Then you need to circle those promises. Then you need to, both figuratively and literally, I never read my Bible without a pen so that I can asterisk, underline, and circle. He sounds like K. Arthur, doesn't he? I literally circle the promises in my Bible. Then I do it figuratively by circling them in prayer. See, God is not finished working in our lives or in this next generation. It's not over. It's not over. God still wants to do a great work, and he wants to use this next generation. And Joshua is exhorting the elders that this is only the start. Don't settle. Don't just settle into this. This is only the start of all the wondrous things God wants to accomplish. Then Joshua rehearsed to them the requirements of faith. The first requirement, to be courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the law of Moses, verse 5. Faith means recognizing that this is not the word of man, not just an advice book. Again, it's the divine word. We pray through it. We live through it. This is sacred, anointed, and powerful, and living, according to Hebrews 4.12. Faith is not just having God's word. But it's the joint adventure of revering it and obeying it, keeping it. And this will mean denying ourselves, defying public opinion, standing out, standing alone, and doing what is uncomfortable or strange. That's where the courage comes in. It takes courage to believe, stand in, and obey the word of God. Joshua was told by God that in order to take the people into promises, he would have to be strong and of good courage. Remember that from Joshua 1, 6, 7, and verse 18? So this generation will need to be strong and of good courage to hold fast, to, to believe the word, to live in the word, and to draw their strength from the word. Sanctification. Joshua then in verse 7 says they will need sanctification. So they need courage to hold on and to keep what is written, but they also need sanctification, and that means separation. Verse 7, Joshua tells them you can't take on the ways of these nations. You're going to have to be distinct from them. You cannot serve their gods. Don't even mention them. Don't swear down to them. Don't use them as your security. You know, the world is constantly pushing their gods on the next generation. Even though the gods of this world have proven to be false, whether it's evolution, there is more scientific proof against evolution. That's why, again, they're trying to say it was seeded on another planet. Whether the world is saying, oh, pot is the answer. We need to legalize it in California because it's such a good thing. No. Ellie was just telling us that she was at a medical meeting in Oregon and they're talking about all the problems they have now and all the new drugs are coming out. 
with to help the people that have all the fallout from smoking pot, from the lung issues to the asthma to the um, brain fog to, uh, to everything. Alcohol. Think about how the world says, oh, alcohol, just have a little drink. Uh, sex outside of marriage, you should just be with whoever you love. Whenever fame, wealth, career, you know the gods of this world. You know the gods that this generation is being pressured to revere and to serve. The secular system of this world keeps pressing allegiance to these gods and upon this generation. Then verse 8, God says, hold fast, or Joshua says, hold fast to the Lord your God. He tells them, you need to get a grip of God and don't let go for anything, for anything. Don't let anyone or anything loosen your grip on God. Let God be your best friend, your constant companion, your refuge, your confident, your help, your strength. Get a dependency on God. Get a dependency on God. I know that one of the things that held me to Jesus through junior high and high school and my craziness of college was that I was so dependent on God. When I even considered backsliding, which I did, I thought, but how can I do that without Jesus? (laughs) I don't want to lose that protection. I don't want to lose that security. What if I'm in a really bad situation? Who am I going to pray? Who am I going to shout out to? Who's going to save me? And I realized it was Jesus alone. Then he says in verse 11, take diligent heed to yourselves that you love the Lord, your God. You see, love must be cultivated. It takes effort and diligence. It takes time. It, ha- it, it includes mutual secrets and conversations and knowledge of that person and prayer. It's more than an emotional experience response. It is a commitment and resolve of the heart. In Mark 12, 28 and 29, Jesus says that it's this love for God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength that is more important, the most important of all the commandments. And if we do this, if we simply love the Lord with everything, we have fulfilled the law and the prophets. We've done that because that's the basis. The basis. Have you ever thought that the basis of the law of Moses was love? That God wanted to protect these people? But we respond. How do we respond? Because none of us feels like that we do this. We pray for that love. We get to know God better. We cultivate it. Finally, Joshua warns them of the dangers of leaving the Lord. Verse 12. There are consequences if you leave the Lord. As I told you before, when I was growing up, I never wanted to leave the Lord. I knew there were consequences, and I was scared to death of the consequences of leaving the Lord. Scared to death of not having a a Savior, not having a friend, not having that confidence in the Lord. There is a place for the fear of God. To pass on the fear of God to this next generation, there are consequences. There are snares. There are thorns. There are hard places that you bring upon yourself when you turn away from the Lord, when you cling to what's left of these defeated nations, when you want to take on what they did, when you make alliances and covenants with this world, when you Take on their immoral practices. Go into them. The Lord will no longer fight for you because you've aligned with his enemy. Friendship with this world is enmity with God. It says in James, I want, to, I want God fighting for me. I need God too desperately. And I don't like the consequences of having the shadow of God on me rather than the countenance of God on me. He says again, snares and traps, scourges on your side, thorns in your eyes. And he says, you will perish from the good land which the Lord God has given you. You cannot hold on to the divine gifts of God while you are in rebellion. 
And then he says, there will be a reversal of all the good things that have come upon you. Verses 15, 16. No more of the promises of God on the horizon. Can you imagine if you couldn't trust in the word of God? If you couldn't grab that promise and say, I'm just going to hold on to this. And then he says, there will be harmful things, destruction, God's anger burning against you. Perish quickly from the good land because of transgressions against the covenant of God. Rebellion, sin, disobedience has consequences. And this is part and parcel of the treasury of faith. It is to warn. God means to keep us from all these disasters. Those who are brought up in faith have a greater responsibility to the faith because they have seen God's goodness. They have had God fight for them because they have received the promises and the gifts of God. And turning away from the God that has given them these things has consequences. And yet, this treasury of faith, this reliance on Jesus Christ, God's son, for our salvation, for our blessing, for our protection, for our health, for our, for our establishment, it is the greatest gift that we have. It is the greatest legacy that we can give. And it begins by admitting our own weakness, not making disciples after ourselves, but transferring all dependency onto the Lord and reminding this generation of God's personal work on their behalf, of God's good gifts for them, of God's good promises to them, of God's requirements, and of the consequences of turning away from this treasury of faith. This is all, this is all that, and this is the only thing that will sustain, establish, secure, protect, and bless this next generation. You have it. You have the treasury in faith. Pray that God will help you to pass it on and pass it down to this next generation because it is the greatest thing that we can give, that we can leave the treasury of faith. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to give to this next generation platitudes that won't work in a time of trouble, pithy sayings, vain philosophies, traditions of men. Lord, we want to give them that which will sustain, that which will bless, that which will protect and establish. Lord, we pray that you would anoint each one of us as we have these personal testimonies. We have our own places where you have helped us. Lord, may we take this treasury of faith. Will you enthuse us again of all we have and all you have done and all that is ours. And may we pass it down as the greatest treasure, as the greatest gift. May we take confidence and joy in our faith and pass it on. We ask this in Jesus' name.